you'd like to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. I'm just going to read the first seven verses of chapter 5. Not sure if I know. It says in chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. We're going to be talking today about our Sovereign Savior, the primary person to have ever lived on this earth. Uh, an interesting statistic is, and again, this is by, uh, according to John Blanchard in his studies, that over the course of this world, since it was created, there has been approximately 60 billion people born on this earth. 60 billion in fact, they say at this time, there's approximately 2 million people born a month, around 25 million a year. Uh, if you want to bring it down to per, per day, or per minute, excuse me, it's about 50. 50 people are going to be born in the next minute. And it just keeps... And yet, of all the people that have been born, there's only one is the primary one, and that's Jesus Christ. And that's who we're going to be looking at today. The life of Christ, actually the glory of Christ. We sang, may he be glorified, may he be lifted high. And really, that's what the book of Revelation is all about. That is actually what the book of Revelation is all about. In fact, as you're here, just go back to the cha uh, cha verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. Because I want you to get what, what John the Apostle wrote in the first few uh, words. It says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say this. The revelations. There's no plural. In other words, we're going to find out in the book of Revelation what the other 65 books before the Revelation didn't, didn't contain. We're going, to, we're going to get a glimpse, and it's all about one person. It's the revelation. See, sometimes we think of a revelation as, well, you know, that's the... That's the tribulation, that's the new heaven, that's the new earth, that's the antichrist, that's the seven churches, you know, all this. It's actually all about one person. He's the subject. It's all about Jesus Christ and how Jesus Christ relates to the vision in chapter 1, relates to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, relates to the tribulation, okay? It's all about Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the the center of history, okay? In fact, as Tozer used to say, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. 
That's a very famous quote by A.W. Tozer. Let me tighten that a little bit. The most important thing about you is what you think when, when you think of when you think of Jesus Christ. Because He's the manifestation of God. That's actually, the most important thing about you is what do you think of Christ? <laughs> As we've been studying ABF downstairs. If you get Christ wrong, you can't be saved. Everything revolves around Jesus Christ. And here we see the revealing of Christ. We need this, by the way, in this day and age. <clears throat> there is so much hopelessness and chaos and confusion. We need a glimpse of Christ. We need an understanding of Christ. And this right here should almost like shock and awe us. <sighs> wow. Wow. That's our Savior. Wow. That's our Redeemer. Wow. That's who I serve. That's my Master. That's how it should hit us. Because the question at hand is this. And this is why the revelation is so important. Is evil going to win? Well, I know, but how do you know that? Because Jesus Christ is living. That's why you know that, right? See, you said it just like that. Well, how do you know that evil is not going to win? Because Jesus Christ is living and he's coming back, right? So again, we, I trust that you, know, you don't get jilted by the chaos and confusion. No, evil will not win. Righteousness will not lose. Righteousness will win. And again, we have to have patience. God is in control of everything. I like Psalms 115, verse 3. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. You might want to write that down, 115.3. I don't know if I might have left it in your notes. Um, but let me give you the big picture, therefore. God, through Christ, created all for the purpose of seeing His Son glorified. Now, that's the big picture. God the Father had the plan... <coughs> But he, through Christ, the second person of the Trinity, created all, that means all that's in this universe. I'm not just talking about all that's on this earth. All that's in this universe. And the Father had the plan of all that's in the universe. By the way, that, that means you've got to add in sin. The allowance of sin. The allowance of Satan. The allowance of rebellion. But God, through Christ created all that we have so that, now this again, by the plan of the Father, the eternal plan, the eternal decreed plan, so that in the end, the Son would get the glory for all that He did, i.e. redeemed the Savior of this world. In fact, if you want to uh, have a, just one passage, we can go to number one, but let's just go one. Colossians 1 verse 15 it says this. You might want to write that down if it's not in your notes. It says, For by Him, now Him is, is Christ, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All right, now, for by Him, for by Christ. What do you mean? Thrones and, and um, dominions and principalities and power. Well, that's not only angelic. That's also demons. That's also Satan. All that we have is... is is uh, by Him. All things were created through Him. Now catch this last two. And for Him. Now that's the big one. I mean, for our purposes. <coughs> All of this that was created. Let me just use those. By Him and created through Him because it is for Him. 
Are you saying that the world create, was created and God knew that there would be a rebellion with Adam and Eve and that there would even be a previous rebellion with Satan and there would be fallen angels and demons and this whole world was created under, with the understanding that there was going to be a rebellion and that His Son would come as the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect God-man, and He would live a perfect life, and then that life would end on the cross, and that was for redemption of mankind. I mean, all that was planned before the world was ever created. Like, like Adam and Eve sinned, didn't joke God. You mean like that was part of the plan? Yes! And all that was going to be for one particular purpose, so that the Son, through His sacrifice, would be glorified and lifted up. Through all eternity, the creation, not just, by the way, those who are saved, but all of creation would point to Him as, as the Redeemer, as our Sovereign Savior. It was the plan of God that all this would transpire so that His Son would get the glory and therefore the Son would give it back to the Father. I mean, it's a, you know, we've we got to go behind the veil. Sometimes we just think in present terms. No, we're talking to the eternal plan here. So you could say it like this. Everything exists, including Satan and fallen Adam. I'm going to throw that in because some people say, well, uh, sin and Satan can't be part of it. No, no. Everything exists, including Satan and the fallen Adam, and a corrupted earth for the glory of Jesus Christ. Well, obviously everything else does, but I mean, even that, yes. So as we enter the book of Revelation, I mean, we're going to be going out chapter 5, and then we're going to get into 6, 7, 8, 9. How, no, that glorifies Christ. Because finally, righteousness will prevail and evil will be destroyed. Right? That's what's going to happen. Finally, the enemies of Christ are going to be put under His foot. And those who have been persecuted and martyred and destroyed by the world, killed. No, we find them in heaven. No, Righteousness prevails, evil does not. That's what we're going to be finding. All this is for the revelation of Jesus Christ, for His glory, for His uplifting. It's all for Him, for His exaltation, for His majesty. Uh, everything exists for Him. And sometimes we forget that, okay? So, Revelation 5 introduces us to Jesus Christ. Again, earth's rightful ruler who is pictured who is the picture about, uh, who is about to be, who is about to return. I don't even know what I wrote. But the point is, who is about to return on this earth and subjugate it to himself. That's the point. He's coming back. I think he's coming back very soon. Do you? I would say. I mean, although birth pains, how many of you are women that have children? They're not, hot, they're not fun. Okay. But, Seems like that's what's going to happen. So Christ is the theme. Christ is the theme of Revelation. Now again, you can say, well, God. No, well, yes, but Christ, the second person of the, of the Trinity. Let's look, look at five parts today. Next week we'll look at more specifically the worship of the Lamb. <coughs> First of all, we see this, the, theme, or the scene. The scene, verse 1. And I saw on the right hand of Him... Well, who's him? That's God, God the Father. In fact, we saw that in, in chapter 4 when we went through this. God the Father is represented in chapter 4. We see in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So the Father, by the way, the Father is spirit. This is imagery, but apparently a literal 
scroll. But I mean, God himself is a, a, the spirit, a spirit. But in the right hand, that would represent the strongest hand, the place of authority and strength. In his right hand, <coughs> the father sat. And again, we saw that in chapter 4, that he sat. Um, again, that means that he's ruling and reigning and presiding over the affairs of the universe. He's not, he's not uh, you know, he's, because uh, that's where a king, you know, a king would sit on his throne. Uh, as I said last time, the throne is not a piece of furniture, but as MacArthur, and I believe this is, it's got to be right, but a symbol of God's sovereign rule and authority. So when we see the rule, the word throne, don't think of a piece of furniture. It's, it's, it's saying that he, is the, he has the sovereign rule and authority over the universe. But notice that, that as we saw in chapter 4, that everything moves towards the throne. Everything is about the throne. Everything in heaven and on earth finds its identity in proximity to the throne of God. You might want to, if that statement's not in your outline, everything in heaven finds its identity in proximity to the throne of God. Everything, that's the centerpiece. And, and as we looked at chapter 4, just very quickly, we saw that, that the word throne was used like 11 times. It's all about God. It's not, it's, nothing's about us. You know, we try to make it about ourselves. Even when it comes to the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, it's not about us. It's about His glory. Look what He did. That's what we're going to be talking If you're in heaven, that's what you're going to be talking about. Man, wicked sinner as I was, and yet the glorious Lamb of God came and died for my sin. But notice the proximity. Uh, Go to chapter 4, verse 2. Immediately I saw in the Spirit, behold, a throne in heaven. And then in verse, the second part of verse 3, around the throne. In verse 4, around the throne. In verse 5, from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings. And before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. In verse 6, before the throne. And next, in the midst of the throne and around the throne. I mean, it's all about the throne. It's like all these arrows. It's all about Him. It's all about God. So now we have God the Father with the, with the scroll. Now let's look at the scroll, number two. And I saw in his right hand, again, a scroll. Okay, let's, let's think about what was the scroll. That, by the way, the word is uh, biblion. Okay, uh, you, some of your versions probably say book. In his hand was a book or in his hand was a scroll. The idea is it was a uh, Something was written on it. Now again, this is not the Lamb's book of life. That's found in another portion of Scripture. But this is not the Lamb's book of life. This is not a will. What this is, is the title deed. Let's, let me say it more specifically. This scroll represents the title deed to the earth. In the Father's hand is the title deed to the earth. And who will be able to open the seven seals? Uh, Dr. Robert Thomas... He was a professor at the Master's College. He wrote this in his commentary about the scroll. This kind of contract was known all over the Middle East. Now, he, he's saying that this was a contract. The scroll, the book, <clears throat> was a title deed, a contract. And it was very familiar all over the Middle East in the ancient times. And was used by the Romans from the time of Nero on. 
The full contract would be written on the inner pages and sealed with seven seals. Then the contents of the contract would be described briefly on the outside. That's why it says on the inside and outside. In other words, the, the, a brief description on the outside, but then on the inside, the, the fuller description. All kinds of transactions were consummated this way, including marriage contracts, rentals, lease agreements, release of slaves, all kinds of contracts. Support also comes from the Hebrew practice. Now, in the Hebrew document, most closely resembling the scroll, was a title deed. So whereas the Romans used this, when it came to Hebrews, it usually always represented a title deed that was folded and signed, requiring at least three witnesses. A portion of the text would be written, folded over, and sealed with a different witness signing at each fold. A large number of witnesses meant that more that the, the greater importance of the document. Now, do you have that picture? Okay. What does this look like? I don't know exactly because there's three different ty- three different comments have uh, uh, been um, proposed as to what the scroll might have looked like. Now, this is Chuck Swindoll's rendition that you had a scroll and then seven seals. Again, it it might not be that. It could be that there was a scroll and the seals were actually on the edges. Sometimes they did it that way. They would roll it and then seal it and then roll it and then seal it and then roll it and seal it. And then other times, as I read earlier, sometimes what they would do is they would roll it and then witness and then seal it right there and then roll it a little bit more, witness it, and then seal it, you know. Actually, as you see the book of Revelation, I would tend to think it's that, not that. Where, because what does he do? The first seal is broken, then the second seal is broken, then the third seal, right? Fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, then it represents everything else. So most likely it was a, a scroll that was rolled, sealed, rolled, sealed, rolled a little bit more, sealed, rolled a little bit more, sealed. Thank you. So most likely that's the... But nonetheless, the point is is that the scroll represented the title deed to the earth. Which again, God the Father, as you see in the text, will give to the Son. Okay? Now unlike other such deeds, it does not record the descriptive detail of what Christ will inherit, but rather how he will regain his rightful inheritance. There's a difference. I'm not saying that the deed... Because he didn't own it. No, he made it all by him, through him, for him. But this is the title deed as to how he will, his, how he will receive his rightful inheritance. Because that's what you see in the scroll, right? In other words, what is the scroll? What does it represent? It, it represents the king coming to, make, to, to judge this earth. And in the end, he comes with us as saints. What? To regain what he what is his, okay. So really, this is the scroll represents um, the process in which he will regain the earth. He, he always owns. I, I want you, but this is how it's going to play out, and that's exactly what you see in the book of Revelation. You get, you know, the the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bold judgments. Why? Because the earth is being punished by the sun because of their disobedience, because of their rebellion. Again, how you see this, you can just start in chapter, chapter 6, verse 1. Look at this. And I saw in the Lamb open one of the seals. One is... Couldn't do that. Anyways, open one of the seals. White horse, bow, you know, and all that stuff. 
Look at verse 3. And it heard come, and what did happen? He opened the second seal. Verse 5, the third seal. Verse 7, the fourth seal, and so on. Just opens the scroll. And with each seal being broken, another judgment upon this earth. Now, the question is, what was written in the book? Well, not only the judgments, but it ends up being this. It's the end of human history. This is the end, guys. Once this starts, this is the end. This is the final. So the Father is going to give to the Son. I mean, I'm getting ahead of my story here, uh, the story. But it's the end of human history. And how does it play out? And as we've been talking and saying in the last many weeks, human history will not dribble to an end. You've got to get that out of your mind, right? It's not going to be overcome by climate change. And Iran is not going to be the final victor. Human history comes to an end when God, through Christ, determines this is it. This is the final. So what's in here is the predetermined, this is what's written, the predetermined eternal plan of the Father. Which again, it obviously includes uh, redemptive history. It's all been appointed. It's all been written down. It's all been determined. And it is unalterable. That's why we come to the table. Do this in remembrance of me. What? Just that you're the lamb? No, you're the lion from the tribe of Judah. And you're coming back. And by the way, we may, he may not come back in our lifetime. You may end up being martyred. And I see in the paper that Donna gave her life for the Lord. Well, actually, you did give your life for the Lord, even if you didn't get martyred. But the point is, but you know what? We can, we can always know this. Righteousness will finally win on the entire earth. And evil will not. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is not only living, but he is a lion from the tribe of Judah. This has all been predetermined. It is all unalterable. The future of this world has already been recorded by God. That's what I'm trying to say. Or to say it this way, every molecule, every event, every influence, every living thing is under the control of God. Really? What would you say to that? Yes. Yes. Everything is moving towards His plan. Or say it this way, history itself is His story. <laughs> I mean, praise God. It's not like, oh, it's not up in the air. It's not like a jump ball. Hmm, I wonder who's going to win. <laughs> It's all been, you know, planned out. But notice it's, a, it's sealed. To the un, unbeliever, it's, it's a mystery. I mean, really, when it says sealed, it's a closed book. And, and, he, and unless, unless the Lord, through the apostle, apostle, wrote it down in the book of Revelation, we would have never known. See, we're getting a glimpse what, that no one else knows. Right? They might say, ah, yeah, whatever. No, no, this is a mystery. This is sealed. But now he gives us a glimpse because he wants his church, he wants his believers to understand you know, what's coming. Uh, write down in your notes Ezekiel 2 verse 9. In, he, in the book of Ezekiel, there's also a scroll mentioned. Probably it's this one. This is what it says in verses 9 and 10. Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me and there was writing on the inside and the outside, but he never mentions what. So Ezekiel might have had a glimpse if it's the same book. And again, I'm using the word if, you know, carefully. So anyways, that's the scroll. So we've got the scene, the scroll. Now let's look at the search. Then they saw a strong angel. Some people say it's Gabriel. Maybe, you know, question mark. 
Uh, Gabriel means uh, God's strength, I believe. But anyways, there's a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. And that's a, now he's a herald. He's proclaiming a mega is the word loud. <coughs> a loud voice, mega. And this is what he's proclaiming. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Who is worthy? Who is worthy? He's proclaiming loudly. Who is worthy? And no one, now notice this, and no one in heaven, okay, that's in the heavenly realm, no one in heaven, no, none of the angels, even the strong angel, Michael, even the strong angel, if this is not Gabriel, Gabriel. Gabriel, no, there was no one worthy to open the seals to take the scroll. Let's, let's keep, and no one on earth. No one that had ever lived on this earth, going back to Adam and then Abraham and Isaac and Joseph, uh, Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Elijah and no one was worthy on earth. And then notice what he says was able <clears throat> or under the earth, even anybody, no one. Heaven, earth, under the earth, no one was able. The word is dunamai. We get uh, dunamis, uh, we get uh, dynamite, okay, powerful. No one had the power or the authority to open the scroll. So the angel is proclaiming who is worthy and, and is found. Like they did a search. <laughs> it's almost like you do a search. Who's going to be able to get the scroll and open its seals? No one. No one in heaven. No one on earth. No one under the earth. No one was worthy. No one had the authority and the power to, to break the seals. Or to look at it. They couldn't do it. So I wept much. Now no, underline the word much. You know, it talk, same word was used when Peter uh, went out and wept bitterly. Wept much. Here's the Apostle John. You know, they did a search of all of heaven and earth and under the earth, and, and no one was found to be able to open the scroll or to look at it. And, and I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. I mean, he's, he's weeping uncontrollably. He has extreme grief. This word was used of mourning and weeping that you find at the gravesite. You ever see somebody really weep at the gravesite? You know, I remember my aunt one time when my great grandmother died. My aunt had a heart attack at the right there at the uh, casket when they were closing the casket on my great grandmother. Um, see, the point is, there's tremendous grief, tremendous grief, sorrow, mourning, and that's what's happening to John. Uh, I mean, he's. You know, who is worthy? Who is capable? Who's strong? To br- but this is why he's weeping. Who is worthy to bring an end to all this wickedness and ungodliness? Going back to the question, is evil going to win? No one, but see, John, no one is worthy to open the, someone's got to bring this to the end. That's why he's weeping. So John is sobbing uncontrollably. It, it seems that there will be no final triumph of good, no final victory for God, no glorious end for human history, no overcoming of sin and Satan and corruption and evil. He, he weeps uncontrollably. I like what uh, Chuck Swindoll said. John knew that if no one had been found worthy, the hopeless condition of the present world would continue indefinitely. The suffering and pain and sickness and death that characterize everyday life would never come to an end. That's the first reason he's sobbing. 
But Swindoll says, but there might be another reason. Yet John's weeping may have had another dimension. For over 60 years, he had placed all his hope in Jesus Christ to turn the world right side up. If if heaven's search for a worthy heir failed, so would his confidence in Jesus Christ. I think that's also true. See, not only is evil going to win, but is Jesus Christ who he said he was. So he's weeping uncontrollably. That's the search. Which reminds us, we should should have that in our heart. We should look at this earth as not our home. We're just passing through. We're pilgrims. We're aliens. We're citizens of heaven. And, And the earth and all that it offers, though it is magnificent in some respects, is still sin laden, right? And don't you get tired of the wickedness and sin on this earth? You don't? Could someone take him out? <laughs> you know what you don't know if you weren't in my ABF is I said the same thing about him at ABF. I mean, he's my... Is he the thorn in the flesh? <laughs> no. Yes, we get... You know, we are so tired that evil is victorious, right? The world is getting worse and worse, more corrupt. Well, 2 Timothy says that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13 says this. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving, in other words, they're in the chair there, right? Deceiving, and what's the next part? And being deceived. It's amazing when the deceiver becomes the deceived. When they start believing their lies. When they no longer can understand truth. Which is exactly what Romans says, right? Gave them up to what? A depraved mind. That means their mind is useless to think in biblical terms. And so, our world is getting harder and harder for a Christian to live in. Evil men, imposters, grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. John weeps uncontrollably. Is evil going to win? And is Jesus Christ who he said he was? Absolutely, he is. And now we find out. Okay, let's look at the number four. The sovereign. But. <laughs> I love that word. But. You know. Like sometimes in Scripture, but for the love of God, but for the mercy of God, but. One of the elders said to me, oh, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. So first of all, we have the command given. Oh, excuse me, I never did the command given. First of all, the command given is this, stop weeping. I need to say that. Stop weeping. It's in the imperative. In other words, this is the wrong response. Uh, come on, get, come on, man, you lost your perspective, <laughs> if you will. So he's told to stop weeping. Get a right perspective. This is going to be the end of the story. It's going to be a glorious end. Get, get a hold of yourself, man. Sometimes we get out of sorts. We lose perspective. And God has to knock on our hearts. Listen, get a perspective. That is one of the reasons we need to come to the table regularly. That renews our perspective. He is the victor. He is the king. He is the redeemer. So first of all, John's told to stop weeping, but then he's, then he's identified, and then the Christ is identified. Behold, it's interesting, that word behold is used 29 times in the book of Revelation. And basically it means give attention to this. 
Get a right perspective. And it's in the imperative. In other words, wake up, look, look, and understand. That's what he's getting at when he says, behold. But then this very famous title, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, that would be an allusion back to Genesis 49 with Judah, okay, as a lion's whelp. <laughs> but, but just think of, I mean, that's an allusion back to Genesis 49. But the more important thing is, wait, what is a lion? Just think of a lion. I was, uh, I was uh, listening to a story of this Japanese woman. She was like 52 years old or something like that. And she was in one of these safaris out in Africa. And as they were going through the safari, she saw a pride of lions. And she was so excited about it, she actually got out of her car, walked towards the pride, and actually took a picture. Now, everything was fine up to that point. It was when she turned that the, the oldest female there came and it said she, they, it, it disemboweled her within 15, I think it was 15 seconds. Because the line was dangerous. But she had made a pet out of it for a moment of time. It cost her life. Well, what is a lion? See, a lion is strong. It's aggressive. It's dominant. It's domineering. It's conquering. It's kingly. It's kingly. But what does it do? It pounces on and devours its enemies. Now, that's exactly what Christ is going to do to this earth through the tribulation. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Yes, he has been pictured as the lamb, but he is the lion. And there will be retribution to those who are, who are in rebellion. But notice, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The, the Judah was the, the main tribe, the leading tribe. It wasn't the first. I think it was the, Judah was the fourth son, I believe. But the point, uh, when the other tribes went off, it was Judah that remained faithful, you know, divided kingdom. It was Judah, it was actually named Israel and Judah. And it was prophesied that the Messiah would come out of David's loins. And so the second part is this, from the root of David. In fact, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, uh, it goes right back. It says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And that's talking about Christ, Christ coming out of the root of David. And so this, this lion from the tribe of Judah is, for, is the root of David. <clears throat> In other words, Christ is the legal heir to the throne, the messianic line, a descendant of David. And, and, and that's why in the Gospels, 17 times, Christ is referred to as the son of David. He's the rightful heir. Of all the ones that could claim to be the rightful heir, it is Jesus Christ. And so what, what has happened? Here the... Elder says, stop weeping. He's alive, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He's going to take this. Why? Because he has prevailed. That word prevailed is the word we saw overcome in chapters 2 and 3, where he talks, when Jesus is talking to Christians and says, he who overcomes, he who overcomes, he who overcomes. You know why he can say that to us? Because he is himself the overcomer. And you say, what did, what did he overcome? What, did, what, what does he say? What do you mean he prevailed, he overcame? It means he conquered. In fact, in, in the Greek it says it this way, behold, he has conquered the lion. Okay? In other words, that is in the very front of the sentence because there's emphasis with that. Behold, he has conquered. 
Our English translations don't give it quite like that. He's the one who is, what do you mean he's conquered? Well, he's the one that has triumphed over his enemies. He has defeated Satan. He has defeated the demons. He has defeated sin and death and darkness and wickedness and the grave itself, right? <laughs> he's alive. <laughs> he's the conqueror. He's the one that's got the right to take the, the scroll. He can break its seals because he's the victorious one. His victory gives him complete authority to take the book, to open it, and to break its seals. Why? Because he's been victorious. He was victorious over the grave. Therefore, we know he's victorious over sin and death and Satan because he rose. That's what we celebrate. Well, obviously, we, we don't just... Do we just celebrate the resurrection on Easter Sunday? No, that's our, that's our theme. He's alive. He's alive. So that's the... The sovereign. And then finally, the sacrifice. And I looked. And behold, in the midst... Oh, see, they were looking all... But in the midst, in the midst, in the throne. Now again, we saw in the midst were the four living creatures. But now we see in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. So now he like places them. They were doing a search. Heaven, earth, under the earth. Who's worthy? No one's found. All of a sudden, it's almost like you know the crowd is being... Oh, wait a second. There he is. There he is in the midst. <clears throat> Excuse me. What? Well, because they were worshiping God the Father. Obviously, Christ would be worshipped too. So there he is. And now we have the description of the lamb. In the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, this is a true description of the Lamb. We saw a description in Revelation chapter 1. Remember, hair and eyes, flame of fire and tongue and feet, burnished bronze. That was Christ in all His glory. This is Christ as He's going to interact with this earth. Whereas that is who He is, this is what He's going to do. He's going to be a lion, but He's also the Lamb. So He's the Lamb. One man said this, Never is the exact word lamb used of Christ outside of the book of Revelation. So when you see in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that's actually a different word, not specific to this word lamb. This is a specific word. Oh, catch this. 28 times it's used. You know how many times the word lion is used of, of Christ? Do you know how many times the lamb is used? I can't, I don't have that many fingers. 28 times. 28 times. So you say, okay, so what's the point? Because throughout history, even earthly history, I think you, we're always going to be pointing to the fact of the sacrifice of the Lamb. The sacrifice of Christ. The one who came to die for your sins. And the one who is always merciful. What do we find in the tribulation? Even in the midst of horrendous tribulation and and death and destruction, a multitude from every tribe and nation and tongue, what? Are getting saved. I think that's why 28 times the lamb is used. One time, yes, he is the pouncing lion. He will, make, he will in the end make sure righteousness prevails. But he is our gracious, saving Savior. Our gracious, sa sovereign Savior. So, we see a, a lamb. Because what is a lamb? Absolute humility. Seemingly defenseless, meek, mild, 
But it says this, as though it had been slain. Huh, the scars apparently are clearly visible. After resurrection, Thomas, look in my hands. I think throughout all eternity, the scars will be on him. Oh, that is what he did for me. And so this, this lamb, the scars are visible, and yet slain. Now slain means slaughtered, cut, mutilated, wounded, pierced, crushed. I mean, it's a very graphic picture. And yet he stands as the lamb, as though it had been slain. This is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who came, obviously, to take away the sin of the world. Every sacrifice in the Old Testament pointed to him. He's the fulfillment of all that was in the Old Testament. That's why Hebrews 10 says this, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. One offering, his sacrifice. But now, this lamb stood. See, the father was sitting, he stood. Well, that would represent triumph. See, he was dead, but he's been raised again from the dead. He's alive forevermore in triumph. He stands in victory. He stands in authority. He stands in dominance. But that's the book. See, that's why it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going to come here and we're going to celebrate the fact that he is standing. (laughs) That he has triumphed. He has triumphed his enemies. Now we just have to have the triumph of this earth. It's a small thing in his power. But because he humbled himself, because he was the perfect servant, because he did the will of the Father, like Philippians 2 says, therefore God has also highly exalted him and and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, what? In heaven, on earth, under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is, is Lord. That's the key. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue. Your relative that hasn't received Christ will someday submit. Right? Your relative that has already gone on and now is no longer on this earth will submit. You know, um, I was talking to Brian after the ABF and he said, is submission the actual best word for that context of every knee shall bow? And I said, yes, but you know, after I thought about it, Brian, I thought, you know, how about this? Subjugation. 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 Is that right? Huh? Well, the subjugation of people. Is that not right? You know what I'm talking about? In other words, <laughs> help me out. Yeah, just let me, you know, flounder out here. Yeah, what is he thinking about? <laughs> He's going to subject everybody to himself. That's the bottom line. In the end, let's just say it this way. In the end, everybody will recognize who he really is. Okay, we'll leave it at that. The humble lamb stood. But then having seven horns, that symbolizes power and dominance. The lamb had seven horns? Yeah, because he has ultimate strength and power. And now that understanding, seven eyes, full of the Holy Spirit, right? Which is the seven spirits of God. Let me read one last thing. J. Vernon McGee in his little commentary said this. He contrasted the lion and the lamb. And he states the lion's character refers to his second coming. Since the lion speaks of his majesty. As lion he is sovereign, as lion he is judge. The lion speaks of the government of God. In other words, he rules. The lamb's character refers to his first coming. The lamb speaks of his meekness. As lamb he is our savior. As lamb he is judged. 
The Lamb speaks of the grace of God. And as far as the book of Revelation is concerned, however, Christ is referred to as a lion only once, and as I said before, as a lamb 28 times. But again, why? Because we just keep remembering both now and through the, or the book of the Revelation and on into eternity, the grace of Jesus Christ towards his creation. I think we're going to be just, not only because he saved us, but we're going to look throughout eternity and say, praise God, praise God. Look at all that Christ did for us. Look at all that Christ did for the glory of the Father. Look at all that Christ did in it. That's why lamb, lamb. So as we come to the table, I want you to remember that he is the gracious lamb. Oh yes, he is meek and mild, but he, he is also the lion. How does that work in your own life? Don't play games with God. <laughs> That's the bottom line. Don't play games with God. Some of you are kids, teens. Some of you are even older than that and you're playing games with God. What do I mean? Well, one, maybe you've never received Christ. Oh, you've heard of him. You know that, yes, he proclaims himself to be God's son, the God-man. But I, I don't want to put myself under his authority. I don't, want, I don't want him as my Lord and therefore I'm not going to receive him as my Savior. And yet understand that evil will not triumph. And all those who reject Christ will end up in hell. And you need to receive Christ. You need to submit yourself. You either come to Christ before death as your Savior and Redeemer and Lord, or you come and are subjugated after death as He is your judge. You will bend the knee. We all do. But the other way that we can play and not take God, Christ, serious is we can be a saved person. And Paul said, don't come to the table unless you come in a worthy manner. In other words, come with seriousness, understanding what Christ did for you. Come with a pure heart, a holy heart. Lord, I want to walk with you because that is what you're proclaiming. You are proclaiming unity with Him and with each other when we come to the table. You are proclaiming, you are my Lord, you are my Savior, and I am walking with you. You can play games by saying, you know what? I can keep this hidden sin. No one knows. My wife doesn't know. My children don't know. My workers don't know. But God knows. And it, what does it say in Scripture? Some of you even sleep. Some of you have been killed because you take this table in a very trite way. Don't play games with God. If there's an issue in your life, and you may be struggling, it might be this type of an issue. Lord, I have confessed this sin 45 times. I've confessed it 100 times. I don't even want to confess it anymore because I feel like I'm... You still need to confess it, Lord. And then you need to even get help. Depending on the sin, it might be the sin of anxiety and worry. And you're just like, oh, you're, God's not in the focus anymore. It's just, I don't know what your sin is. Selfishness. I just say things brashly and hurtfully and I just keep doing it, Lord. Will you forgive me? You need to still come in a pure way, Lord. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for the... 250th time, Lord, forgive me. And Lord, I, I want to get serious about this. I want to see victory through your Spirit. But don't play games with God. Because again, this is very, very serious. We are remembering both what Christ did. We are remembering that He is our Redeemer. But just like we saw, we are remembering how powerful He is. If He could take the scroll out of God's hand, do you think He could solve the problem of your sin? 
He not only forgave it, but he can, you can find victory over your sins through the, the power of the cross, right? So again, that's how we have to look at it. You may be a very unloving, unkind, ungracious person. You're a Christian. But Lord, I want to be gracious. I want to be like you. Lord, but it starts with repentance. And then, it's, then it continues with dependence. Repentance, dependence. And that's what we're... We are actually making commitments to Jesus Christ that who He is and what He's done has affected us and we're following Him. Make sure you're serious about God. Don't play games with God.